So this morning, uh, in kind of s- instead of starting off with a uh, kind of the typical Easter messages that I've kind of done in the past, looking immediately at a passage, I want to look at a statement that Jesus made in uh, in John 11. And the statement, it's a, it's a powerful statement because we claim it as a promise. We take it as a promise that Jesus has made. And, and there's nothing worse than being disappointed by a promise. You know, there's nothing, nothing worse than being disappointed by someone who's made you a promise or, or you're counting on someone to, to pick you up at a specific time or, you know, you think that you've bought your ticket for this event and they said they were going to buy theirs and then the day of comes and you find out you're actually going alone because they never felt, followed through on their end of the, of the deal and, and bought their ticket and so now you're stuck. You got nothing, you know, it, it fell through or, you know, when you're counting on people, to, to be promised something, but to not actually ever have that, that promise, uh, you know, fulfilled, it, it's just heartbreaking. It's disappointing. You don't know what to do. It puts you in a place where, uh, you, you know, you feel lost, you feel confused. And that is the promise of death. You know, it's the, it's the thing that uh, hangs over all humanity. Every man will die. But here in John 11, Jesus makes this statement to Mary, and he makes a greater promise. So if you read with me, he starts off, uh, we'll look at verse, starting in verse 17. Uh, Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to uh, to Martha and Mary to console them, concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went in and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So in this, in this section of scripture that we're looking at this morning, uh, Jesus will make a promise to Mary, uh, or to Martha here. He's going to speak something to her, a statement. And then what we're going to look at, after we unpack this promise a little bit, we're going to look at the implications of this promise. And so Jesus here is off with his disciples at this time, uh, it, it tells us, and he is across the Jordan where John had been baptizing a couple of verses earlier reveals that to us. And Mary and Martha send word to Jesus that their brother Lazarus is sick that he has uh, an illness, and uh, he tells uh, these people who come to notify him that uh, this sickness, you know, like, don't worry about it, this sickness isn't unto death. And then in in John 11, uh, verse 5, it tells us, now Jesus loved Martha. This is after he gets the news and her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So Jesus is already a couple days journey away, and then he gets news that Lazarus is sick, and then he waits two more days on top of that. So even if Jesus had left right away, it's still a couple days journey. Then he waits two more days after he gets the news, and then by the time he arrives... Uh, verse 17 tells us that Lazarus was in the tomb for four days already. 
Now, that was, that was significant uh, in, a, in a sense because in, it's not the same in our culture where, uh, you know, we have all this, today we have all this embalming and, you know, there's a whole process where they prepare a body and, you know, it can be, uh, you know, a week to, they could put it in you know, kind of a, a longer time period before the funeral. But in those days, the day that you died, you were, you were buried on that day. You had to you had to be um, put into the tomb that same day. They didn't have the same method of removing the uh, you know the organs and and things of that. So they would pack the body with spices and things, not to preserve, but to you know put away the smell because it was about to smell real rotten. And so they would put this these spices around. And here uh, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Now, this was also significant in the sense that there was a a, a rabbinic saying, it was in uh, rabbinic journals at the time, that there was the thought, uh, you know, that the the spirit of a a body could be hovering above the body for up to three days. Now, these cases, you know, most likely came about as the result of uh, people who maybe had heart palpitations at the time, and they appeared to be dead, and, you know, they were put into a, a tomb or, you know, they were, they were put away only to like kind of come out later and, uh, you know, they weren't actually dead. They were, uh, you know, maybe in a coma or so, those sorts of events. And so Jesus here, he, he waits longer than three days. These, this uh, rabbinic journals recording that it's possible, but once three days are over, you're dead, dead. That's according to kind of what the, what the rabbis were communicating. You were, you were gone for sure after three days. So Jesus waits uh, here till Lazarus is dead, and then this is the fourth day. And so Martha hears that Jesus is finally on his way, and he, she runs out to meet him on the road. And Martha's response here to Jesus showing up, he, he, she says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She is operating under this promise of death. Death has claimed her brother, and it is irreversible. And her response is, is that, Lord, if you would have been here, she doesn't really know what he could have done or would have done and, and how this would have, would have gone about, but she communicates that she has some belief in who he is. But, but even now, she says, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, her response isn't here to be blamed. She's not being like, Jesus, I can't believe you didn't show up. So lame of you. If you were here, you could have healed him. And it's your fault that he's dead. That's not what's happening. This is more of a lament. She's just crying out like, you know, in uh, disappointment. Like, if only you were here, you could have saved him. If, if only you were here, if only we had uh, the tools. If you were here, you could have touched him and, and, and healed him from this sickness. She's not expecting Jesus to do anything about Lazarus's death. This is just, she's grieving. She's, she's weeping here uh, with Jesus. And Jesus, in verse 23, he consoles her uh, in kind of a strange way, not a way that we would, you know, want to, to uh, be consoled uh, as we would console another human. Uh, he, he says, your brother will rise again. You know, it's kind of like, it's okay. He's He's in heaven, you know. It's kind of the, the thing that's kind of being it, being communicated here, and and, uh, it, and to an extent, uh, 
theology is, is there. Jesus' perfect theology. So he's right. <laughs> and then Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she believes that he is going to be resurrected and he will be brought forward on the last day. But Jesus says something to her and he just changes the conversation completely. And here's the statement and the promise that he makes. Jesus said to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So Jesus comes back and he responds to her with more. She thinks that Jesus has just kind of given her some consoling thoughts like, oh yeah, you know, he's going to rise again. But he offers more than that. He gives a statement and he gives a promise here. And the promise is that he is the resurrection and the life. He redirects her whole attention from like, don't think about your brother. Think about this. Think about who I am. The resurrection and the life. Now, when Jesus says that he is the resurrection, what he's saying is that wherever there is death, I can resurrect people. Death will not be the final word because he is the resurrection. He says, I am the life. I am the one who gives eternal life. And what Jesus is saying here when he says, I am the resurrection and I am the life, he's not saying in in the sense that he is literally those things like, you know, when I, when I show up, like, I can bring the resurrection and the life. What he is, in fact, saying to uh, Martha here is that he is, the resurrection and the life are so a part of him, they're so connected to him, that apart from him, there is no resurrection or life. You cannot have any resurrection or life. He is the exclusive provider of resurrection. And then he, he follows up, And makes his point. In the midst of trouble and of death, Jesus offers a a promise to her. He says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, when we believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, when we believe the promise that he is, in fact, the resurrection and the life, it's a way of insulating us. It protects us because when we place our trust in him who overcomes the only thing that we can be sure of in this life, death, when he is more sure than that, when he can defeat the only thing that we could be sure of, he is greater than death. When we place our trust in him, when we uh, find our identity in Christ, it protects us from all other things because even death cannot hurt us. Even death cannot destroy us. Jesus says, don't don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear that, you know, fear him who could who could destroy the soul. He's the one who's in control. He the you know, our, our earthly life, this physical body, it's it's just a moment. And when we place our trust in him who has defeated death. We have a resurrection with him. We're raised with him. And, you know, we've been talking about that as we've been going through Colossians. We're buried with him in baptism. We're made alive together with him, raised with him. 
And so here, Jesus displays just this amazing uh, rule over death. He, he's the one who can reverse it. He can, he can turn it around. And he is so connected with reversing death. That's the whole point that he came, the reason that he came. Because in the garden, when Adam sinned, that was the word to him. The day, of, the day that you eat of this, you shall surely die. And that, that was not enough. You know, Jesus was like, that's not happening. I'm going to come and take care of that. <clears throat> and ever since, he's been so invested in reversing death that he comes himself to destroy death so that we don't have to surely die. And he's invested in us because we bear his image. We who were rebellious, he comes and puts himself in our place. And he's so invested in defeating death that when he's on the cross in John 19 and he's there, he says, it is finished. The payment has been made. He bows his head and gives up his spirit. And what he means there when he says it is finished, it's it's another promise that he makes is that the obligation uh, to die for sin, for bloodshed, for the law's curse, has been fulfilled. So he's the resurrection and the life. He makes that promise. And then he says, it's finished. I've fulfilled it. I've defeated death. So I can be the resurrection and the life. Nobody uh, who believes on him has to suffer under the punishment of sin. And Luke 24, it, it tells us here that Jesus kept his promise. So flip over there, Luke 24, 1 through 7. It says this, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. This is these women. <clears throat> and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. These are angels who are showing up here. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? I love that statement. Because the angels testify that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Death could not hold him. He is greater. He has defeated death. And it says in verse 6 of Luke 24, He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. So Jesus has kept his promise. And in Luke, or excuse me, in John 11, when he brings forth Lazarus, when he eventually raises Lazarus from the dead, he, both there and here in Luke 24, shows that he is the resurrection of the life and the life. He has complete sovereignty over death, that he's defeated it. He has conquered it so that one day we will never have to face that last death. And so we see that because Jesus has overcome death himself, Because he has conquered the grave, because Jesus has done that, we see that he keeps his promises. He has kept his promise to be the resurrection and the life. He's faithful. He's never going to disappoint us. So when we stand in the grace of God, when we place our trust in him, when he says that 
if you, uh, if you find your life in me, you'll never die. We can believe him because he's defeated death. And so Jesus keeps his promises. He's kept his promise to be the resurrection and life by raising himself, by what we celebrate this morning on Easter and the resurrection. And so uh, before we wrap up, I want to look at five quick implications of of the result of the resurrection of Easter. Five quick implications. These are just five things that happen as a result. The first thing, because Jesus kept his promise to be the resurrection and the life, because he raised from the dead, we see the deity of Christ validated. Because Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead, it carries huge implications. In Romans 1, uh, verse 3 through 4, it says this, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and, to, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Romans 1 tells us that because Jesus rose from the dead, he is God. He is, the, he is declared to be the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. Because Jesus rose from the dead, he is unique. In, in all of humanity, we see all the religions that people are following, and none of the other followers or founders are in compare with Jesus. You can go and visit their tombs. Jesus is unique. He's the only one to rise from the dead. He's the only one to be resurrected. He's not on an equal playing field. He's not a, a you know, an equal philosopher or, you know, with, with a, you know, Buddha or Muhammad or Vishnu or, you know, any of these other uh, religions. No other icon stands as an equal to him because he's the only one who has risen from the dead. He's the only one who has conquered the grave. A, uh, a scholar and theologian, uh, D.A. Carson, said this uh, regarding uh, Christ's resurrection. God's final verdict on his son is not seen in the cross, but in the resurrection. It's the resurrection that demonstrates that Jesus is who he said he is. Anybody could go to the cross and suffer Anybody could go and die a, a horrific death, but how do, how do we know like, what it was, that it was valid, that God received it? Well, we know because Jesus was resurrected. It's that spirit that works within us that raised Christ from the dead. Colossians tells us that it's God who raised him from the dead, the Father. And so in rising from the dead... The second thing that happens here, because Jesus has risen, is that death has been defeated. Now, this is important because a lot of times when we look at Scripture even, we see that other people have come back from the dead, right? We just talked about Lazarus this morning. But Jesus didn't just come back from the dead. He wasn't just resuscitated. He wasn't given CPR and then, oh, you know, you made it. He was resurrected. He was brought back completely. And the Bible tells us that Jesus went through death, 
defeated it, and then came out on the other side victorious. He didn't rise from the dead only to die again. He rose from the dead to live forever. Lazarus was risen from the dead as Jesus called him forth, but then he died again. We don't see Lazarus walking around today. We're not chatting with him. Jesus rose from the dead never to die again. Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that death has no effect anymore because it's been defeated by Jesus. And here, Paul's citing two Old Testament passages. He cites Hosea 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 14. It says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. That's so hardcore. I love that. O death, I will be your plague. O grave, I will be your destruction. It's Jesus who has destroyed the grave. Isaiah 25, 8, Paul quotes also in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So it's Jesus who has defeated death. In his resurrection, he proves that he has conquered and defeated the grave once and for all. The third thing, the third implication of Christ keeping his promise to the resurrection, to be the resurrection and the life, is our justification. Romans 4, verse 24, tells us, It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So the resurrection of Jesus, it proves that God is satisfied with the death of Jesus as the removal of our sin and guilt and condemnation. And because Jesus was raised, it demonstrates that Jesus didn't have to stay dead to keep paying for our sin for all eternity, but his suffering and death was enough. It was sufficient. And so the resurrection is, is God's stamp of approval. It's the, I've received the payment. It's a receipt. You've paid. Here it is. I have the proof that you've paid. It's in the resurrection. It really is finished. When Jesus said it was finished on the cross, he was serious. He meant it. It was true. The debt that we owed was paid in full. And so because of that, because we've been justified before the Father, we don't have to stand there in, in guilt, in shame, in condemnation of sin. We've been brought near. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So because we're justified, because we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus has done. 
because he's been raised, because he is the resurrection and the life. And we've obtained this access. It's a beautiful thing that Christ was raised for our justification. But it goes beyond that. And here's one of the different differentiating marks of being resurrected. Because when Lazarus was raised, and he was the same old Lazarus, but when Jesus is resurrected, the first time that he sees the, the disciples, you know, they're like in this prayer room, and they're like, we heard that Jesus is alive, and then he just shows up in the middle. He doesn't knock at the door, he's just through the wall. He's got a resurrected body. And because Jesus is raised, we will have new bodies. That's one of the other implications here. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So we're going to receive these glorified bodies when we see Christ. First, Christ has this, it tells us. And then in Philippians 3, verse 20, it tells us our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 21, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We will have these new bodies. It tells us in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 there, at his coming. When we see him face to face, we will be given these new bodies, just as he was given a resurrected body, a glorified body. So we will receive a body not filled with you know, wrinkles, cavities, decay, you know, you just wake up sore after working out. I'm over that. Let's be serious on that workout. But it's just one of those things where we will be made whole when we see him. Last thing, number five. <clears throat> because Jesus keeps his promise to be the resurrection and the life, because he has raised uh, from the dead, he has begun his intercessory ministry for us. Romans 8, verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Paul tells us that what happens here as the result of Jesus resurrected, being resurrected because his blood has paid for us, no one can bring a charge against us. No one can, can bring condemnation against us. That's what it says in Romans 8.1. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That is to say that no one can bring a charge against you and say, you are a sinner and you have to pay for your sins. You have, to, you have to pay the price for your sins because of what you've done. 
In, in Romans 8.1, it tells us that, that there's no condemnation upon you because Jesus has already paid that price. He is the one who has paid that. And it tells us that he is interceding at the right hand of God. So no one can bring this charge against us. And Paul's argument here in Romans 8 is that Jesus died. And he's not the one who's going to stand there. He can't simultaneously be the one who condemns and the one who intercedes. But he is the one who is interceding on our behalf always. He makes intercession for us. And his plea before the Father, when there is a charge brought against those who place their trust in Christ, is simply the same thing every time. His blood. His plea is made with his own death. It's the cross that he has placed before the Father to make the case for our, uh, our cleansing, for our justification. And so it's Christ's intercessory ministry that stands there uh, before the Father there, uh, freeing us from guilt and shame, freeing us from condemnation. When that when we would feel condemned, you know, like we sang in the song earlier, you know, when Satan, uh, you know, when Satan tempts me, you know, we look, we look to the father and, and who looks upon the son. And when he looks upon the son, he sees that we are cleansed, that we are free. It's just a beautiful picture of, of Christ's work as the result of resurrection. Now, <clears throat> those are just a couple of the things that happened as the result of, the, of Jesus keeping his promise. And he told the disciples that he would keep the promise. He said, here's, what, here's what's going to happen. You know, uh, in another of the Gospels, um, you know, they're, they're reminded there of what Jesus said after he dies. It says specifically, and they remembered the words that Jesus said. And then they were like, oh yeah, we should go here because he's going to be waiting for us. We remember what he said. And they recalled the promises that Jesus made. That he would see them again in three days. And after three days, I will rise and I will see you again. But there was one who was not with them in the initial response in the initial time where they received Jesus for the first time. In John 20, it tells us about a man, a disciple named Thomas, who was one of the twelve, and he was not with them when Jesus came. Verse 25 of John chapter 20. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This is a man who, although Jesus' promises were good, he didn't know what to do with them and he didn't believe them. And, you know, to be fair, the other disciples did not either. They didn't understand what was happening. But here's his response when he sees in uh, verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. 
Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. So Thomas makes this great confession right after Jesus says, I am who I said I am. My promise is good. You come and check out the promise. You place your hand in in my fingers and in my side. And I love how Jesus finishes it by saying, don't disbelieve, but believe. Because we need that word of encouragement from him a lot of times. We need to be told, you should believe this. You know, we need to be, to receive that exhortation from Jesus. And what happens here when Thomas realizes that Jesus keeps his promises is his demeanor changes and he turns from someone who is doubting to someone making a confession of allegiance. In verse 28, he says, my Lord and my God. He realizes that Jesus' promise is good, and he makes his confession. And in verse 29, Jesus goes on and he says, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That's you and I. We've not seen him, but we've believed upon Christ. We've believed that he is true. That he is the resurrection and the life. And we want to have the same response as Martha has in John 11. After Jesus tells her, here's the, here's the secret, here's the promise that you need to know. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he finishes with that same thing with, with Martha. Do you believe this? You see, when Jesus presents himself as the resurrection and the life, when he presents himself as the answer to the, the only thing that we're guaranteed of in this life, death, it demands a response. You can't just, uh, you can't just have, a, have a, a mediocre response. You either believe or you don't believe. And she says to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. She confesses her belief to Jesus. And then Jesus goes on to demonstrate for her by raising her brother that he really is the resurrection and the life. And his raising of Lazarus is only a foreshadow of what he would do, you know, just a a couple days later in his own resurrection. In what we celebrate this morning, that he is the resurrection and the life. And so because Jesus keeps his promise to be the resurrection and the life, because he has raised, it demands that we have the response of Thomas, of Martha, in saying, my Lord and my God. It calls us to respond in worship, to recognize that he is the Lord, and that we shouldn't be seeking the living among the dead. We shouldn't be feeling around in the dark when we've been given access, when we've been justified, when we've obtained that uh, that access that that, uh, we talked about. You know, we've been given this entrance into the throne room as Jesus makes intercession for us. And so that is what we celebrate this morning as we look at Easter, that he is the resurrection and the life. 
And not just in that one moment, but he will give life to our mortal bodies. We will be made alive together with him when we place our trust in him for salvation. And he will raise us up with him when we will have new glorified bodies and we will see him face to face. It will be beautiful and we will celebrate and go on a really long run together with no pain. It'll be awesome. I'm so excited about it. And so let's respond. Let's sing together um, in response to this. And we'll, we'll receive communion together. Um, and, and take a couple minutes to thank the Lord that he is not in the grave, that he is not one that we can go and, you know, see his bones, that we can see uh, you know, that memorial stone, here lies Jesus of Nazareth, but that the grave is empty. We can celebrate that, and one day we will see him face to face, as plain as day, and our minds will be blown. I hope it's like that moment in the garden where, where you know, Mary first met Jesus, like in and she mistakes him for the gardener, and then he just, like, says her name. I can't wait for Jesus to call my name, and then just have, like, this explosion of a response, like, no way. It's going to be so good. So let's pray. I'm getting way too excited. Lord, we're so overjoyed that you have conquered the scariest thing in our life, looking at death, Lord, the thing that we can't find a way around, no matter how healthy we eat, how much we exercise, no matter how well we take care of ourselves, we can't escape. Lord, we're thankful that you have conquered death, that you have given us that escape, Lord, we want to celebrate your faithfulness today. Lord, that you have destroyed the grave. You have conquered so that we might be made alive together with you forever. And so we pray that as we respond in worship, Lord, you would receive our adoration. Lord, our affection. We want to place that upon you this morning and lift our hearts and our voices and our hands to you in thanksgiving. We love you. Thank you for saving us, Jesus. Thank you for raising from the dead. We love you. Amen.